now. We'll go there later. I would like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Just get yourself settled there. That will be our starting place in a little bit. So Revelation chapter 13. In the last couple of weeks, anti-Israeli and pro-Hamas protests have uh, saturated the news. Just yesterday in London, there were as many as some count half a million protesters in support of Hamas and what they did in the attempt to obliterate Israel. It was in a reaction, of course, to the attempt of Israel to defend itself from the events of October 7th, which we discussed last Lord's Day. Hamas is known as a terrorist group and uh, has been clearly proclaiming itself as an enemy of Israel and continues to have a desire to kill the Jews and to permanently eliminate the Jews from the land of Israel. They believe the goal, and they have this goal stated specifically, is the destruction and obliteration of the Jews, all of them, in the liberation of the land for the purpose of establishing a caliphate. A caliphate would be what you and I would used to know as an Ottoman Empire, where Islam rules the nations. They don't try to hide their hatred of the Jews, but regularly parade that and even teach it to the youngest of their children to commit jihad. Their anti-Semitism is very evident, no doubt. And that anti-Semitism is empowered by the devil and Satan himself. And sadly, though, what has become more abundantly clear than ever is that this anti-Semitism has spread throughout the world. It is clearly more than just the regular run-of-the-mill hatred for an ethnic group. In fact, as one commentator said this week on social media, he said, I am a millennial in my eschatology, and I will still tell you this. I don't know how to account for the consistent and resurgent anti-Semitism apart from a demonic hatred of the Jesus bloodline. Y'all can think I'm foolish or whatever, but what I am seeing is not reducible to earthly geopolitical dynamics alone. And I would have to agree 100%. This is clearly demonic and satanic. According to a recent poll here in America, 60% of Islamic people support Hamas. What is even more surprising, though, is that 51% of young Americans, 18 to 25, believe Hamas was justified in their brutal terrorist attacks on innocent Israelis on October 7th, 51%. This is just another way of recognizing how depraved our nature really is and just how far away from God our country has become and how immoral this country has. We are on a steep decline, greased with no moral absolutes, and a rejection of the God of the Bible. Some of you remember this wonderful pastor, James D. Kennedy. He wrote these words a number of years ago now. He since has gone home to be with the Lord, but he said these words, and I quote, Tolerance is the last virtue of a depraved society. When you have an immoral society that has blatantly, proudly violated all of the commandments of God, there is one last virtue they insist upon, tolerance of their immorality. Tolerance. And I would add to that not only tolerance of immorality, but tolerance of religion. That's right. 
you heard it right, tolerance of religion. And I don't mean just any religion because there is no tolerance for biblical Christianity at all. But any other religion, there's great tolerance for. And even sadly, there's tolerance for religion that is bloodthirsty and desires to conquer a people for their own religion. One author wrote, Islamic Jihad is the greatest immediate mortal threat to the world. That's pretty surprising, isn't it? I mean, some of us would tell it's the economy or oil or just society as a whole having trouble relating to one another. This commentator said Islamic Jihad is the greatest immediate mortal threat to the world. No other God, in quotations, ask a believer to forcibly convert or kill another person in order to be proven faithful or devout. None. And history, sadly, is a reminder to all of us that under the name of religion, millions of people have been killed. Millions have been killed. Millions have died under the banner of religion, and millions more will die under the banner of religion. Revelation 13, where you are settled, I'm sure, is a passage that reminds us of what happens whenever religion that is ungodly takes hold. I'm not going to get into all that is in this passage, but I want to highlight a few things. So let me read what it says in Revelation 13, which is telling us about a antichrist and a beast empire it says in verse 2 of revelation 13 now the beast which i saw was like a leopard and his feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave him his power the dragon being the devil gave him his power his throne and great authority and i saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all of the world marveled and followed the beast so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he, that is the beast, was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue 42 months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God and blasphemed his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Now notice verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is telling us under the name of religion, a false religion, in fact, it is granted to the beast, the Antichrist here, to make war with the saints and to overcome them and to kill them. A little later in the same text, in Revelation 13, verse 11, it talks about another beast. And this beast is the false prophet. It says, then I saw in verse 11, a beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He, that is the false prophet, performs great signs so that he is even makes fire to come down out of heaven to the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them who dwell on the earth. 
by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and, listen to this, and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is an example of what the future holds. Religion, a particular kind of religion, I believe, that is going to lend authority to those in place of authority in this religious context of the Antichrist, the ability to kill, and to kill in the name of their God, and to kill in the name of their religious purposes. History is replete with examples of people who are slaughtered in the name of a God, and the future will be no different. And what we are seeing right now in the Middle East is a representation of what happens whenever a religion is sanctioned for the purpose of killing another people. That's what you're seeing. There's much more going on over in the Middle East than the news would like to tell you. In fact, there's much more going on over in the Middle East than much of us would be willing to accept. So what should we think about this as Christians? There's a lot of information out there, especially today with Internet available to us. There's a lot of information and a lot of misinformation, and some of that that is circulating on there would have you believe that it's time to get your rapture wear on and to go to the top of the roof and wait. Any moment now, Jesus is about to show up. And there's others who are telling us that Israel and what happens in the Middle East has absolutely no significance whatsoever to biblical prophecy. Well, as I told you last week, I do not know that this is that, or even that this is a precursor that would lead to the coming of Christ, although I do personally hope that it would lead to the coming of Christ. It is important to realize here that there have been times in history that nations have gathered against Israel and against Jerusalem before, and that anti-Semitism is not a new thing on this planet, but has been historically found all the way back to Egypt in the time of the Exodus. We saw it fully manifested in the time of Hitler at the Holocaust where anti-Semitism ended up killing millions of Jews. So I would always advise caution whenever you read any prophetic literature and considering current events. But also I would want to tell you this. Be very careful not to forget that one day this will be that. And we will be there. And if we're not careful, we're going to be so complacent about our own understanding of the coming of Christ that we're going to be lulled into sleep and to think that everything's fine. We've seen this before. And we need to be very careful not to allow that to come into our lives so that we are not ready and prepared for the events that are coming on this earth that will lead to the most monumental, powerful, glorifying event of all history, and that is the showing up of Jesus Christ in the sky. But now, just for now, may I kind of glean from a phrase that Francis Schaeffer once said, how shall we then live? I would say, how shall we then think on these things? And 
why do we see these things continuing to escalate and permeate in this region of the world? And as I shared with you last Lord's Day, just the very beginning of this, we talked about the roots of the conflict. The roots of the conflict, which are found really at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We looked at that, obviously starting with the fall of man. That's the reason why we have all the hate that we have in the world and all the murder and everything else that goes along with it. But there is a specific prophecy given to us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that I will read again just for your remembrance. It says in Genesis 3:15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was a declaration by God that the future is going to be filled with the attempt of the devil to obliterate the coming seed which would be Christ, and frankly, the people that would bring Christ, which would be the descendants of Abraham or the Jewish people. This prophetic announcement also would be something that would set Satan on edge because he would know and he would believe that if he could stop this from happening, then that fatal blow to his head would never come. You know, you would think that Satan would understand by now that what God says happens. I mean, he's been around a long time, and he's been there to observe the prophecies being fulfilled for centuries now. And yet he still is convinced, it seems, at least by his actions, that he has, an, he has at least a chance to stop it all, to end it all, and for him to finally and fully be in charge. Well, in God's providence and according to his own sovereignty, God will grant the devil a time a time in the future where he, will, where he will be granted such authority and such ability, both miraculous and also the ability to kill. He will have one, less, one last attempt, if you will, to exercise his will to take over. But I can go ahead and tell you the end of the story. He doesn't succeed. There's one more that's coming, our Lord Jesus Christ, and whenever he comes... He's coming with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to obliterate Satan. He's going to obliterate him. But as I also told you, there's more going on here than just this prophetic announcement. There's also something that's happening in the Middle East that most of us, I'm sure, are aware of. There's a fight happening for a piece of real estate, and that is the place we call Israel today. That has been a problem for a very long time and will continue to be a problem until the Lord comes back. Because Satan knows that in order for the Lord to come back, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to come back to Israel. It says that clearly in the Bible. And so that land is very important. And also it's important not only because of that, but it's important because God has promised from long ago to Abraham with a unilateral covenant that wasn't dependent upon Israel's obedience or Abraham's obedience, that he would give them the land, not temporarily, but forever, forever. Those verses are very, very clear. So there is a real reason why this is happening over there. Not only Satan trying to stop the lineage of the Messiah, but also trying to destroy the people of Israel. But now he definitely is desperate to make sure that they do not have possession of the land that God has promised. And if he can do that, then he can show that God is not faithful to keep his promises and that they are not an anchor to hold on to, like Hebrews 6 says. And that God is not faithful to do what he says, and his word cannot be sure and true. You know, that's what Satan has done all along, has he not? At the very beginning in Genesis, he says, 
has God really said? I mean, does God really say the truth? Does he really keep his promises? By the, by the way, I would add one more thing to this. According to Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Israel are also indicative of how well he will keep his promises to you. That's the whole argument of Romans 8 through 11. The whole argument. So we've already seen now, of course, that there is that problem going on over in the Middle East. And we also saw and just briefly looked at that in Genesis 11, we saw that the descendants of Shem were the ones who occupied that known area of Mesopotamia. And then you had the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Ishmael that became the Arab nations that we know today, and they were going to be hostile toward Israel. They would not be participants in the covenant. And to this day, we have the conflict occurring in the Middle East. But for a very long time, for a number of centuries, you had Arab communities that had different cultures, different idols, different worship. But then, in the devil's own working, by sending a demon to a man by the name of Muhammad, he led him to establish today what we know as the Islamic religion. Muhammad, which means in Arabic, highly praised, he was born in the Middle East in 570 A.D., about 500 years after Christ, he claims to be a descendant of Ishmael. He also was the source of the Quran. And in 622, he made his home in Medina. And that became the official date of the start of the Islamic religion or the Muslim era. And to this day, and I'm sure probably you heard this back on 9-11, whenever the planes hit the buildings in New York and the Pentagon... But back then, we were fast-forwarded into an understanding of the Islamic religion. For those who did not understand, they understand now. That there's a group of people in a particular religion that desire your death. And desire the death not only of Christians, but the death of any infidel and any Jew. Today, radical Muslims call Israel the small Satan... And they call America the great Satan because we support Israel. That's the beginning of the roots, but it leads me now to the most really important thing that I want to share with you today regarding some of the trouble over the Middle East and the reason why these things occur, and that is the religion of the conflict. The religion of the conflict. The predominant religion of the Middle Eastern area is Islam. That should be no surprise to you. And I'm going to give you a brief Cliff Notes version of Islam and its religion, but I'm going to focus in on the end of that and talk about their eschatology. That's right, they have an eschatology. They're looking forward to a future. They're looking forward to the fulfillment of their own prophecies. But just as a refresher for all of those, all of those who have studied Islam and for all of those who haven't and have no desire to do so, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of that religion. There are six basic articles you need to understand about Islam. The first is this, Allah is the one true God, and he is not a trinity. He is not a trinity. And he is not the God of the Old Testament, nor is he the God of the New Testament. He is Allah, the one true God. Second article is the Koran is the most holy book. There are other books that are tradition, but... The Koran is the most holy book. 
Three, Muhammad is the greatest prophet. Allah has sent, according to Islamic literature, 124,000 prophets, Jesus being one of them, but Muhammad is the greatest of prophets. Four, there are many angels, and there are even many demons, and there is a Satan in Islam. He, they call him Iblis. Five, Allah has predetermined all things by unchangeable degree, decree rather, and Allah is absolutely sovereign, and everyone's destiny is predetermined by Allah. And number six, there will be a day of judgment when all will determine, all will find out whether or not they are going to heaven or hell. That is totally up to Allah. You can add good works and good deeds to it if you will, but ultimately in the end, you have no ultimate influence in your salvation. Only Allah can determine that. And then there are five duties that Islam's, Islamic people practice, Muslims. They're called the pillars of Islam. And the first is this. They are to recite the creed of Islam many times a day. And that creed is this. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You probably have heard someone say that. The second is they are to pray five times a day, usually praying toward Mecca. Three, they are to give to the poor. Muslims are taxed 2.5% of their income. And they are to give to the poor out of the 40th of what they make. And number four, there's a month of fasting called Ramadan. And that is a time whenever you fast during the daytime. You can eat at night or else most of them wouldn't make it for 30 days. But you can eat at night. You cannot eat during the day. And this is for the purpose of commemorating the first revelation that came to Muhammad in 610 A.D. That's a very important monthly religious event, the month of Ramadan. And then every Muslim, number five, must once in his life, at least, if, unless he's somehow unable physically to go, he must make a pilgrimage to Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia. That's a basic synopsis of Islamic religion. However, there's much, much more to it than that. They have their own theology, and their own theology needs to be clarified just for a moment. The Koran says Christians who believe in the Trinity are infidels. And also, Allah only loves good people. He does not love sinners. They teach that Jesus Christ was a man. He was not God. He was not God's son. Jesus is not God, according to the Koran. He is an infidel. They quote, or a quote from that is this, Any Muslim who believes that Jesus Christ is God has committed the one unforgivable sin called shirk, a sin that will send him to hell forever. And that's one of the reasons why you have such a hard time seeing the conversion of Islamic people to Christianity because they know that whenever they claim Jesus as God, they have, according to the Islamic religion, committed the unforgivable sin. Further, their theology teaches that Jesus did not die on a cross, and since he did not die on the cross, he did not resurrect from the dead. He is just a mere man. No other salvation is found except in Allah and not in Christ. And it's really heartbreaking to realize this, that according to, this, to the Islamic religion, they have no savior. They have no means of propitiating for their own sins, no way of having atonement. In fact, if you were to talk to a Muslim today and ask them, do you have any assurance whatsoever of ever having any of your sin forgiven, they will say no. That all is determined by Allah. 
Now for Islam, the world is divided into two parts. Dar al-Salam, which is the house of peace, and also Dar al-Harb, which is a house of war where the infidels live. You are either in one of two places. You either live in a house of peace or you live in a house of war. That's where you live. And in 1948, when Israel was constituted again as a nation, Islam considered them to be an infidel people who had inhabited the place of their own. And they called them those who live in the house of war. The house of war. According to one author, when Israel won its first battle with the Muslim Arabs, they started to take back the land. It was a defeat for Allah. And Ayatollah Khomeini, the Iranian Ayatollah, said, Israel's presence in the Arab land is due to the backslidden condition of Muslims, and Allah is greatly displeased. The defeat of Israel, therefore, said the Ayatollah, will become a sign of Allah's pleasure with the Muslims. Did you get that? So if you defeat Israel and destroy Israel, you are now pleasing Allah. And for those committed to jihad, which is a willingness to give your life for Allah as a martyr, you are guaranteed paradise. And according to one, the moment, this is one sheik over there in uh, some of the Islamic lands, I won't even try to uh, pronounce his name, but he's the chief mufti of the Palestinian police, and he said this, and I quote, from the moment of the martyr's first drop of blood that spills, the martyr feels no pain. He is absolved of all of his sins. He sees his seat in heaven, and he is spared the tortures of the grave. He is spared the horrors of judgment day. He is married to black-eyed virgins. The Koran describes these women as beautiful like rubies, with complexions like diamonds and pearls, and he can vouch for even 70 of his family members to go to paradise also. It gives a little insight into why so many are so willing at a young age, young men specifically, to go into war and to give their lives because they're guaranteed 70 virgins and also to allow 70 of their own household to go into paradise. Another Mufti Sheikh said this, the Muslims love death and martyrdom just as the Jews love life. There's a great difference between he who loves the afterlife and he who loves this world. The Muslim loves death and seeks martyrdom. Now this doesn't start late in life. This starts early in life according to the radical Islamic religion. The Palestinians have even a form of Sesame Street over there. Did you know that? They have Palestinian Sesame Street, and it started off as an attempt to bridge between the Israelis and the Palestinians to try to bring peace through the Muppets of Sesame Street. Later, as it didn't seem to work out too well, it has been used to teach particularly those of Hamas children to kill. In one article that I read this past week, it said, and I quote in Hamas, run kindergartens there are signs on the walls in which in the Palestinian area and they say this the children of the kindergarten are the shaheeds that is the holy martyrs of tomorrow they're teaching their children to kill Jews and Christians while we have our children playing video games another sign 
that was put up in a classroom at the Al-Najjar University in the West Bank said this, and I quote, Israel has nuclear bombs, we have human bombs. An 11-year-old by the name of Ahmad said, I will make my body a bomb and will blast the flesh of the Zionist, the sons of pigs and monkeys, which is, by the way, what the Koran teaches about infidels and the Jews, that they're the sons of pigs and monkeys. This same 11-year-old Ahmad said, and I quote, I will tear their bodies into little pieces and cause them more pain than they will ever know. His classmates responded by shouting in response, Allahu Akbar, God is great. The teacher yelled back, may the virgins give you pleasure. And so it goes. Just a few years ago now, 13 years to be exact, in September 24th of 2010, at that time, Iranian president was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And he gave a speech at the General Assembly of the UN, and he began praying at the end of that speech and saying, Oh God, hasten the arrival of Imam al-Mahdi, and grant him good health and victory, and make us his followers and those who attest to his righteousness. Now with that prayer, there were a number of news reporters there that wanted to find out what exactly he was talking about. He was praying about the hastening of the arrival of the Mahdi, or the Mahdi, as we would think of it. And since 1911, the Islamic religion has come, in, come into focus more than ever, and we have learned a great deal. And some have pointed out, frankly, that this Islamic religion has an eschatology that has in it a very interesting element. And the element of that is, is that it comes with the destruction of the Jews and the Christians couple of things to consider right away if we think about this is that if things don't change dramatically and they would have to change very dramatically Islam will become the largest religion in the world very shortly secondly Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world four times faster than Christianity if the present trend continues half of all global births will be to the Islamic families by 2020 by 2055 Islam also has the fastest growing religion in the United States, in Canada, and Europe at an average of 8% a year. This amounts to 25,000 converts a year in the United States alone to Islam. And since 9-11, the number of converts in America has quadrupled. And also, 80% of the converts in America sadly come from Christian churches. From Christian churches. Now, I want to talk just a moment about this eschatology. Because I think it's very important for you to understand these men, these young men who have committed themselves to jihad and the destruction of Israel and the Jewish people have a reason they're doing what they're doing. And one of the reasons why is that they believe by doing this it will hasten the arrival of the Mahdi. Now what exactly is that and what are we talking about here? In the end times, according to Islam, they have three great signs. Three great signs. They have some minor signs, but they have three specific great signs that they're looking for that will tell them that they're at the end of the age. And the first of that sign is a man. And the man is the Mahdi. You may have heard someone talk about that. The Mahdi. He is also referred to sometimes as the 12th Imam. Some in Iran believe that he's going to come up out of a well in Iran, in a small town. 
Now, you have to understand this about the Islamic religion, much like it is in evangelicalism. When you say evangelicalism, that's a big word, right? And that encompasses a whole bunch of denominations and, frankly, a whole number of views regarding eschatology. And when it comes to Islam, there are those that are very, very committed to their eschatology, and there are others who aren't as committed to it. And there are others who have a little bit variety of view, but ultimately they all end up in the same place. And they're desirous, especially those in leadership in Iran and those in leadership in Turkey, are desirous of the arrival of the Mahdi. He's coming, according to what we learn from their own literature, he's coming to slaughter all of those who will not worship Allah. He's coming to convert everyone to Islam. They identify everyone who's not part of Islam, even the Jews, as pigs and dogs. And he's coming to establish everlasting world-dominating kingdom of Islam, or what we would know as an Ottoman Empire or a caliphate. The Mahdi, or the 12th Imam, it means the guided one. He's the long-awaited savior of Islam. He's the final one to establish the caliphate. And the world must follow him, and he will destroy all the enemies of Allah. He will carry on a holy war, and if you're not converted, he'll kill you. He will lead a massive army and go into nation after nation, punishing the unbelievers. The holy writings of Islam say that the army will carry black flags. And right now, Iran carries armies with black flags, and written on those black flags are the Arabic words for punishment. Punishment. Now, the coming of the Mahdi is something that is looked forward to, as I told you, among most of the extreme radical and conservative Islamic people. They are desirous of destroying the Jews to take hold of the Temple Mount. They believe that the Mahdi will actually rule from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They will slaughter the Jews and take over that area. According to their own writings, the Mahdi will bring rain, wind, and crops, and wealth, and happiness, so that all the world will love him and speak well of him. Their writings, they say, will come to a peace agreement with the Jews for seven years. The reign of the Mahdi will last seven years as he establishes his reign on the earth. According to their own writings, the Mahdi comes riding on a white horse. And believe it or not, they actually take Revelation chapter 6-1 as a reference to the Mahdi. The one riding on the white horse in Revelation 6-1. It was also something that Saddam Hussein believed he was. He believed he was the 12th Imam and the Mahdi. And he had murals even depicted of him riding on a white horse, if you remember that. When the Mahdi arrives, he will discover hidden scriptures. He will find them somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. And he will find written in those scriptures that everything that you and I believe about our Christianity is wrong. How convenient. And he will tell everyone that all that we believe in our scriptures is wrong because they have found more scriptures to verify that. The Mahdi will be messianic in his figure. He will be a descendant from Muhammad. He will be an unequaled leader. He will take control of the world. He will become the leader of the new world order. He will destroy those who resist him. He will invade nations with armies. He will develop a seven-year peace treaty. He will conquer Israel and massacre the Jews. He will establish Islamic headquarters in Jerusalem, particularly the Temple Mount. He will rule for seven years, and he will have supernatural power 
and according to their own religion will be loved by all in the earth. Now, if this sounds any bit familiar to you, if you know anything about the teaching of the Antichrist in the Old and New Testament, this sounds just like him. Listen to this. Their Savior is our Antichrist. Their Savior is our Antichrist. The Mahdi is exactly the description of the biblical Antichrist described for us in the book of Revelation and also other portions of the New Testament. But there's a second sign. And the second sign is also a man. This man is called the prophet. And this second person they call Jesus. Now he's not our Jesus. He's their Jesus. Remember they said that our Jesus did not die and was not resurrected and was not the son of God. But they have the right Jesus. And according to their own religion, the Mahdi is greater than Jesus. I mean, you couldn't have anyone uh, greater than the Mahdi, the savior of Islam. So Jesus is lower than the Mahdi. And so Jesus will return, according to them. They believe that Jesus is coming back. If you were to talk to a Muslim and you say, hey, I believe Jesus is coming back, they would say, yes, we believe Jesus is coming back. But they have a different understanding of who Jesus is. They believe he's coming back, and whenever he comes back, he's coming back as a prophet alongside of the Mahdi, and he's coming as a radical Muslim, and he will come, according to their own writings, holding on the wings of two angels who flew him down to meet a gathering army of the Mahdi in the east and the army of black flags. He comes back and will pray to the Mahdi, who is greater than him. He will worship Allah, this Jesus will. He will lead all Christians who follow him to reject their notion of Jesus, what they believe Jesus is, and accept the real Jesus, who is just a prophet. He will establish a worldwide Sharia law. He will become the greatest Muslim evangelist and will be the final witness before the day of judgment against non-Muslims. Christians everywhere will affirm that they were wrong and that they got the gospel wrong and that they got the New Testament wrong based upon what their Jesus will say. And he will correct all our misinterpretations of the Bible. Let me quote what their literature actually says. He will shatter crosses. That's a metaphoric term to use to refer to the destruction of churches or Christianity. I don't know if you remember ISIS a few years ago. When ISIS would go into any town... They would destroy any church building or any representation of Christianity. And they would destroy the crosses. They also carried the black flags. So this says that he will come and shatter crosses and he will destroy or attempt to destroy the church. He, according to their writings, will kill the pigs. That would mean the Jews. And he will abolish the tax on non-Muslims. Now there's a tax called the jazeera tax which is a tax on those who are non-muslims and if you were a non-muslim living in a muslim land you could live there as long as you paid your tax they would allow you to live there as long as you paid the tax but he's going to come back according to their own writings obliterate the tax which doesn't mean you're getting a tax break what that means is they're going to kill you if you don't worship allah there will be no toleration of any other religion whatsoever 
Who does this look like? Well, this compares very clearly to the false prophet of Revelation chapter 13. He does exactly the same things. He aids the Antichrist. He calls people alongside to worship the Antichrist in our particular view of eschatology. But here he's calling along this fake Jesus of Islam. He's calling them to worship the Mahdi. Now there's one last one, one last sign. There's the Mahdi, their prophet, which they call Jesus. And there's one last one. And that is what they believe to be the Antichrist. Yes, they believe there's going to be an Antichrist. In their own religion, they believe there's a coming Antichrist that will need to be defeated by the prophet and the Mahdi. Guess who they believe the Antichrist is? Our Jesus. Our Jesus that's coming back. This is the third sign or the third person. In their view, the Antichrist will show up. The Muslims call him the Dajjal. Now, they're referring to our Christ, okay? Our Jesus. According to them, he will be a great deceiver. He will come to the earth on a mule and have one blind eye. He is an infidel, a false miracle worker, the Antichrist, the Islamic Antichrist. He claims to be Jesus, the Son of God. He claims to be deity. He will attempt to stop the Mahdi, the true Jesus, that is, and... He will be slaughtered. And this is their view of the true Christ. Our Jesus is their Antichrist. Our Jesus is their Antichrist. Quoting their own words, the army of Satan will be led by a person who will claim to be Jesus Christ. Now, I always wondered how in the world there would be any group of people who would have the insane thought that whenever Jesus shows up, they could defeat him. Revelation 19 says that armies will be gathered against him when he comes back. Who in their right mind would go against someone coming in the clouds? Who in their right mind would go against one that comes in brilliant glory? Well, according to Islam, they teach that one coming that we call our Christ is their Antichrist. And everything in them is taught that they should kill this Christ because it is their Antichrist. Now in the end, what we find out is that what they believe to be their eschatology is a satanic counterfeit. It's a mirror image in the opposite of what we believe. Their Antichrist is our Jesus. Their Savior is our Antichrist. There's no other religion in the world that comes close to that at all. Now, in the end, I ask you the question, will Islam win? Will the jihad finally win? Well, the answer is no. I know the end of the story. No matter how many nations gather against Christ, no, how, no matter how much hatred is mounted, satanic hatred is mounted against the people of God and Israel, they will not win. Neither Hamas, Hezbollah, or Iran can change it. And that leads us to the last point, and that is this. I have this point to make and then a couple of concluding marks I want to share with you. The roots of the conflict, the religion of the conflict, and now the resolution of the conflict. The Bible talks of a time in the future of great distress. I want you to turn just for a moment to Daniel 12. Daniel chapter 12. 
This particular time of distress is going to be coming on the area of Israel first in the world. That is the hub of the distress. It will be centered in on Israel and Jerusalem. Jeremiah 30 calls it Jacob's trouble. But I point out Daniel chapter 12 because this is a very interesting passage that has in it the future resurrection. So whenever you're reading prophetic literature, one of the one of the points that helps you to know where you are in eschatology is if that passage has the resurrection in it. I mean, if it has the final resurrection and the final judgment, guess where you are? You're at the end, all right? Most scholars don't debate that unless they want to spiritualize the resurrection and make it something other than a physical resurrection. But Daniel 12, 1, and we're picking up in the middle of the context here, but let me read what it says. Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Daniel. Who's Daniel's people? Israel. And it says that Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, he says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even until that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel, shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And then many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we know from this text, according to what Daniel says in his prophecy here given to him is that Michael, the one who seems to be overseeing, if you will, or watching out for the people of Israel, will be there and there will be a great time of trouble unlike anything in the history of the world. But at that time, the people of Israel shall be delivered, the ones found written in the book. And that will be the same time of the resurrection. Now I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. As much as I'd like to just spend weeks and weeks expounding this, I'm going to read some of the passages here to you and let you just hear what they say. Just listen to what they say. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. By the way, the book of Zechariah is the Old Testament prophecy of Christ. It is saturated with Christ. In fact, it has the prophecies of the first coming, and it has the prophecies of the second coming in Zechariah. And what is also interesting is, concerning the first coming, it has the prophecy of Jesus coming, riding in on a donkey. And also, it has the prophecy of Jesus being betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Now, I say that to say this. Whenever we read the prophecies of the first coming of Christ about the 30 pieces of silver and the riding in on the donkey, we don't spiritualize those texts away. Because we have hindsight, which is 2020, which tells us we interpret that literally. Why then do we get to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1, and all the way through chapter 14, and all of a sudden, it's all spiritual? There's no reason why we have to read it like that. There's nothing in the text that tells us we need to do that. And frankly, if you read it, it makes perfect sense. Probably one of the clearest prophecies in all of the Bible, especially when you compare it to the book of Revelation. 
Zechariah 12, 1 says, And the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. This is the creator God, Yahweh. Behold, God says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, whenever they come against Jerusalem, they're going to walk around like drunk, staggered people out of their mind. They're going to lose all sense of reason and reasonableness. And it shall say in verse 3, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who will heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, right now we're seeing that, right? You mess around over there in Israel, you get into a mess. Zechariah 12, 8 says, verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now here he did not say he's going to destroy all the nations. What he did say is he's going to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Zechariah 12.10 and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, that is, those in Jerusalem and in Israel, will look on me whom they have pierced. This is also quoted in Revelation chapter 1, by the way. This is the time of Israel's salvation. This is Romans chapter 11, when all Israel will be saved. They will look on the Messiah coming. They will recognize by God's grace as he opens their eyes to the truth of who the Messiah was. And as Jesus comes in literally in defense of Jerusalem and in defense of the people of Israel, they will look on the one whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning of Hadad and Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. This is going to be a great grief of repentance. They're going to be saved. The Jews are going to be saved at that time. Zechariah 13, uh, verse 2. Zechariah 13, 2. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. God's going to perform an exorcism over the land. Get rid of all the demons. Chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of my people shall not be cut off from the city. Then, at that time, the point is, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, folks... I read an article this past week from Ligonier. I love Ligonier, okay? But the author of that article said, we obviously, I like the word obviously, we obviously cannot take this literally. 
Because God is a spirit and he doesn't have feet. I thought, no, really? I said, if I remember Acts chapter 1 correctly, when Jesus was glorified and he had a glorified body, which by the way, had feet, he was standing there with his disciples and he was taken up into the sky and there were angels standing there and said to the disciples, why are you standing gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus will come back in the same way. And it says, they left the Mount of Olives. Folks, when he comes back, he's coming back physically in his glorified body to put his feet on that mountain. There's no reason why we have to say this is not literal. As I told you last week, he's coming back. And he's not coming back to New York or Washington, D.C. He's coming back to Jerusalem, specifically the Mount of Olives. Now, I love Ligonier. But I think they missed that one. At least that author did. He's coming back and it says his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. And by the way, I don't know if you caught this, but through this text and through Zechariah 12 through 14, it constantly refers to Yahweh. And this is the Yahweh that comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives, which tells us again, as it always does in the Bible, guess who Jesus is? God. He's God, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of the, toward the south. And I know people have all kind of trouble with that. Surely God can't do that. Folks, he created the world in a word. Can he split a mountain if he wants to? I mean, you have the most... Ki- you know, climactic event in all of history. Jesus shows up, the creator of the world, and he comes and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. Do you think everybody's just going to say, oh, well, that was really nice. He had a soft landing. That was sweet. No, he wants to make a big impact. He splits the mountain wide open. Then it says in verse 5, then you shall flee, talking about Israel, you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee and you shall And as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, Uzziah, the king of Judah, thus the Lord God will come and all the saints with you. I love that. And all the saints with you. All the holy ones with you. Now, some believe that's angels. If I read my eschatology right, when Jesus comes back, at at that point, I'm going to be with him. Even if you're post-tribulational rapture or you're pre-trib or you're mid-trib or you're pre-wrath or whatever you are, when Jesus shows up, you're immediately transformed and you're with him. If you've never been to Israel, this will be your chance. You'll get to see it. And you'll be on the right side, and you'll get to see the Lord himself take care of things. It says in verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which, the, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be, the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. The living waters refer to springs, not, not pools or ponds, but springs. The Gion Spring specifically, I believe it's referring to, that was a notable spring in that area in Jerusalem, the Gion Spring. And half of them toward the western sea, and both summer and winter shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. 
And the land shall be turned into the plain of Geba of Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from the Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanal in the king's winepress. And then verse 11, and the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And that's not the end of it all because in verse 12 it says, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike the people who fought against Jerusalem. Justice is coming for those who fought against the people of Israel in Jerusalem in that day, the nations that came against them, which I believe personally, now this is my own personal belief, I believe this is Islamic nations coming against Jerusalem. It says that he will strike them, strike them there, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, and their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. And in that day... When it comes to pass, that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. You bet. Well, when is this? Well, I believe this is telling us exactly what Revelation 19 says. Look at it with me just for a moment. We're coming down to the end. This is going to come fast. Revelation chapter 19. This is verse 11, Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, and listen to this, he makes war. He makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had the name which was written which no one knew except himself, he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We know who this is. This is Jesus Christ. And he's coming back. And he's coming back to make war. And it says in verse 14, And the armies in the heavens, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horses. That could be angels, or that could be us again. Or both. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That with it he should strike the what? The nations. And he himself will rule them, that is the nations, with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his right thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the angel standing in the sun and, and the, he cried out with a loud voice saying, To all the birds in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all the people, free and slaves, small and great. These people who gathered against him in the armies of the nations who came against Jerusalem are struck by the power of God. In verse 19, And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and the armies, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's why I say I don't understand anybody in their right mind who would come against Christ. Only one, only one religion that believes that this coming is the Antichrist. And that would be Islam. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest, that is the rest of the armies that were gathered against uh, Jesus there, 
at that time were killed by the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. I told you last week I know how this ends. And I know the resolution to the problem. The resolution to the problem is Jesus showing up. When he shows up, he's going to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Now I want to close with just a couple of thoughts to think about. And these are just things to take home with you today and for the next weeks and months ahead as we navigate this war in the Middle East. First of all, be careful not to let the current debates over eschatology in Israel and its significance in the future dull you or lull you into complacency regarding the coming of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. I hear this all the time, and I just said it earlier. We have seen this before. We've seen the armies gather against Jerusalem before. And we may see them again. And this may not be that that we just read about in Zechariah. But it may be. But it may be. And we don't want to just sit around and say, hey, no, don't want to worry about that, don't want to read on that, don't want to look at that, don't want to consider that. Let me tell you what it says in 2 Peter 3. You don't need to turn to it. 2 Peter 3, knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, I'm not saying any of us are doing that, but I am saying this. We can find ourselves doing this. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. In other words, look, we've been here, done that, seen that, got the t-shirt, don't want to go back. There's a, there's, a, there's a constant talk out there. I hear this all the time as I listen to a lot of this stuff. Well, we, we don't want to get into the rapture theology and the 88 reasons why Jesus comes back in 1988. We don't want to be reading Hal Lindsey and the great, you know, last great planet Earth, whatever that was called, and the whole series of books that were written, what were they called? left behind, I hear, oh, we don't want to talk about the end times because that's a bunch of hype and a bunch of nonsense. Folks, one day this will be that. And we don't want to be, even as Reformed brothers and sisters, be lulled into a position where we think, hey, we never can get there. Don't let that rob you of something that could be very, very close in our future. Remember this, Peter said, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Just because it's been 2,000 years to God, it's only been two days. He said his coming is near, it's at hand, it's at the door. He said that 2,000 years ago. That was only two days ago to him. Could be very close. Second point I want you to take home with you is this. Regardless of your position on eschatology in the future, if we are following the passion of Jesus Christ and the apostles, we will see this. That the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Greek. Let me share with you the passion of the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9. Whenever I got to this in our study in Romans, I was absolutely, utterly shocked at it the more I studied it. In Romans 9.1, I tell you the truth, Paul says, and I am not lying. My conscience is also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He says all of that because you're not going to believe what he's about to say. He says... I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He says, I would wish that I could go to hell if they could be saved. That's what he's saying. He has enough passion for his Jewish brothers who are the crucifiers of the Messiah, who are the Christ rejectors and Christ haters. At that moment, that's where they were. They were apostate. And he says, I have enough compassion, enough love in my heart for my people Israel that I would go to hell if they could be saved. I want to challenge us all today, myself included. Do I have any compassion like that for the Jewish people? Do we? Or are we all into the same thing? Well, we're Israel. Therefore, there's no need to worry about those guys. Listen, they're lost without Christ. They will go to hell without Christ. Just as much as the Palestinians, Hamas, Hezbollah, Iranians, the Turks... All of them without Christ will go to hell. And you and I should have the same passion, compassion, for the lost as the Apostle Paul said. Because remember this, he said, follow me, Paul said, even as I follow Christ. You want the heart of God? You want the heart of God and his passion for the lost? This is it. Written by the Holy Spirit. One last one. All orthodox positions on eschatology believe in a literal return of Christ. No matter where you are on your eschatology, we would all agree that we believe in a literal return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the reward of the saints, and the judgment of all Christ's rejectors. So let's keep in mind this very important point that in the end, all of our errors in eschatologies will be set straight. All of our errors will be set straight. But, here's the point I want to make, the eternal place of the people you know is permanent. It's permanent. Jews or Gentiles, without Christ, will go to hell. Let me also close with this other one. I think this is really good. It's pretty bad when you praise your own sermon, right? You, there's a phrase over in Peter that is really an interesting phrase. I want to read it to you, okay? 2 Peter 3.10, listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Good question, right? Be prepared, be ready, be holy, be faithful. Then it says this, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening the day of God? According to the book of Acts, it's very clear that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the living and the dead. It's already on the calendar, folks. It's already set. Yet this Bible verse tells us that we can look forward to and hasten the coming of the day of God. I went back and checked the word for hasten. It's the Greek word spudo. And it actually has the idea of causing something to happen sooner. That's what it means. And I thought, okay, I'm reformed. I know things are set. 
how in the world can I cause the coming of the Lord to come sooner? Well, this is where it goes. Have you ever wondered why you pray if God's already got everything planned out anyway? You ever wondered that? Well, the reason why you pray is because prayer is the means that God has chosen to get to the end. In other words, he's chosen to use your prayers and through your prayers to save the elect, to heal the sick, to solve problems, whatever it may be. I mean, he could just do it automatically himself, but he's chosen to do it through his own power, through his own prayer of his own people so that they are used by God and God gets glory through it all. So God uses prayer to accomplish his end. And also, listen to this, God uses our efforts to see the salvation of the Gentiles and the Jews to hasten and to bring closer, if you will, the coming of the Lord. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, you need to be praying for the Gentiles to be saved. Are you a Gentile? Most of us are, right? You know Gentiles? You know any of them? I know a bunch of them. And I know a bunch of them that are lost. And they need Christ. And we need to be praying for their salvation. Listen, the Bible talks specifically about the end of the Gentile time. There's a time that this comes to an end. Like, for instance, in Luke 21, 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive into all nations. This is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Your time is coming to an end. Our time comes to an end. We can pray for the salvation of the Gentiles so that the Gentile time is fulfilled. It even says this same thing, by the way, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, partial blindness, has happened to Israel right now until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the most amazing mystery in all of the Bible. God has blinded Israel, put them in a place of apostasy so that he could save you. He literally set them aside so that he could save you. And there's coming a time when his work with us, as it says here, until the times of the Gentiles has come in, then it says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And there's one other phrase as I just shared with you, pray for the Gentiles that they would be saved, but also you pray for the Jews that they would be saved. If you want to hasten the coming of Christ, if you want to be a participant in the sovereign plan of God to see Jesus come back and you want it to happen sooner, well, in our mind, it'll act sooner, but we'll be participating in the sovereign plan of God for it to occur. And we pray for the Jews to be saved. I mean, seriously, I ask myself this. When's the last time I prayed for any Israelite to be saved? I have recently as a result of what's happening in the Middle East, but often, oftentimes they get off my radar. And I don't even pray about it. But if we pray for the Jews to be saved, listen, this is one of the things that has to happen for the fulfillment for Christ to come back. Again, reading Romans eleven twenty-five, for I let me just have you turn there. I told you we were going to close and we're trying to. All right, Romans eleven twenty-five. I want you to see this. Romans eleven twenty five. I apologize for the long sermon, but I've got to get done with this so that we can go back to something else next week. Romans eleven twenty five. Listen to this. And I do not desire, brethren, 
that you should be ignorant of this mystery. I just read some of this, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Talking about Israel. He will save them in the future. Now look at verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Concerning the gospel, they don't believe the gospel. They reject the Messiah. They don't believe in Jesus, but they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. God set them aside for your sake so that you can be saved. But concerning election, God's sovereign choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They are enemies right now, rejecting the gospel, but according to God's divine sovereign election, they are the beloved of God according to and for the sake of the fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises he gave to them. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. God's going to flip it over. And God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. This is an amazing mystery in all of the word of God that God is going to save Israel in the end. And if you pray for the salvation of the people of Israel, folks, you're praying for the coming of Christ to happen. Because that happens at that time. That happens at that time. Now, I want to close and say this, this. This is not all bad news. Some of the stuff I share with you is not necessarily good news about what's happening over there and what we see happening. But there is good news. And I want to tell you something. You may not know this. Did you know that the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran? That's right. Now, they don't have buildings and budgets or buses. They're underground, but there are many who are coming to Christ and are believing in Christ as Messiah. Some of the mosques over in Iran are empty. And also, stretching it a little bit, outside my reformed comfort zone, there are a number of Islamic people who are coming to Christ claiming that there are angels showing up sharing them the gospel of John. And they're believing the gospel. Now I'll leave that with you as to whether you accept that or not. It's hard to refute the fact of what they're telling us. They're believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever they do that, it's much like what happens to a Jew whenever they come to Christ. They can be excommunicated. They can be put to death. And their family can be put to death for their belief in Jesus Christ as Messiah. And they are, according to their own religion, committing the unforgivable sin when they believe Jesus is the Son of God. So let's pray for that. Let's pray for the Gentiles to be saved. Let's pray for the Jews to be saved so that we can hasten the coming of the Lord. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time. And Lord, we are just so overwhelmed with the amount of information that you give to us in your word regarding your plan. Lord, I just pray that you would give us a small portion of the passion and compassion that Paul had for the lost people of Israel. 
Lord, I thank you that even as I look at this text and as bewildering as it is to me and hard for me to comprehend, that you would set Israel aside and so many would die in unbelief so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles could be saved and that we could be saved. Lord, I give you praise for your mercy. We don't deserve any of this. And we pray, God, that you would just save so many of Israel and that you would save so many, Lord, of the Gentiles. We all know many, many people who don't trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. God, bring glory to yourself as we desire to hasten the coming of the God of heavens. In Jesus' name, amen.